Diane at 7.45 p.m. Welcome to another episode of Twin Peaks Peaks. Uh, my name is Ashley Brandt. My name is Matthew Olson. And we have a special guest this episode. Introduce yourself, our special guest. Hey, Matt and Ashley. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, my name's Scott Benson, and I reside in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'm a huge, lifelong Twin Peaks fan and um, have pretty much listened to all the podcasts about Twin Peaks and thought you guys' take on it was kind of fun and refreshing and thought it'd be kind of fun to compare notes. Awesome. Cool. Fun and refreshing. <laughs> um, like ginger beer. Like ginger beer. Oh, exactly. wait, you, you just you just spoiled the, the surprise. For <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't even think Ashley's mom has called us fun and refreshing yet. So, uh, we'll we, can, uh, we can get to my mom's comments later in the show. Remind <laughs> All me. Right. Oh, good. Um, well, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's quickly uh, set up our damn fine food segment for the week, uh, actually. Um, this week, uh, there is a point at which Pete reads a note uh, addressed to him uh, from Josie. Uh, where he references, or where Josie references the ginger beer she has left for him in the fridge. So this week we are, Ashley and I are going to enjoy some Hollows and Fentimins, uh alcoholic ginger beer. And, and I'll jealously watch. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately we weren't so coordinated as to say like, hey Scott, see if you can find this brand out on the East Coast of this very... I mean, you can see it over Skype. Very hip-looking ginger Very... beer. Very, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess at the end we'll uh, tell you, you the listening audience, what we think of it. But um, yeah, first guest. Yeah. Um, that's not the only thing that's different this week. Uh, we're recording not in my bedroom for once, uh, but in my living room. Uh, Ashley and I both have our own mics, so we don't have to sit like hip to hip on my bed. Uh, I'm sure you're as happy about that as I am, Ashley, right? I am, yeah. This is, I think, going to be a good setup. <laughs> uh, other things that might interfere, um, like my refrigerator cycles, you know, when it needs to, uh, needs to keep things cool and fresh. Uh, the couch that we're sitting on is actually a futon and it's very creaky. Uh, but the thing I'm most concerned about happening uh, while we record this podcast, um, and Scott, you can testify to this. You haven't heard this happen during any of the shows. Uh, just last night, I was uh, just you know minding my own business, watching some not Twin Peaks television, when what do I hear coming from the upstairs apartment but the opening theme to Twin Peaks <laughs> very loudly. <laughs> um, and uh, given how the audio in the show is mixed, I couldn't ever like make out what episode it was or mm -hmm. what the characters were saying, but whenever like music would start playing, uh, it would re-enter um, uh, my personal space, and I was like, I can't escape this, not for the life of me. Um, <laughs> so that might happen. That might yeah. happen, and God knows what we're gonna do. We purposely don't use music from the show on the podcast <laughs> for a reason, so. <laughs> I don't think any amount of editing magic is going to remove that. Yeah. Well, let's just hope that um, Angelo Badalamente doesn't doesn't sue us uh, once he listens to this podcast, as he does every week. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he does. I'm sure David has put him onto it at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, 
I guess like normally we start out with revival news, but if there's anything there is revival news, and I was about to segue to okay. it because Angelo Badalamente is officially signed on to do all of the music for season three. Cool. All right. Yeah, which is like I would have never thought that he hadn't already signed on. I thought that that was just like definitely like gonna happen. If you actually if you actually get David Lynch's signature on a on a piece of paper, it means Angelo has agreed to do whatever it is as well. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> but it was good to like get that confirmation because I also started thinking like, what were they gonna do if he didn't? <laughs> Just use the same music over and over again. I don't know. I mean, that's how they do the music for you know. Uh, from what I understand is on the original run of the show that he hardly ever uh, composed any music for uh, any specific scene. He mm -hmm. basically created a whole library of music that was used. And it would up, up to the music editors to go in and kind of work with the director and shape pre-existing music uh, for each specific episode. And I know that as the second season went on, obviously he had a whole bunch of new themes, but but I would hate for them to just recycle everything. And I, I, I'm glad that's not the case. Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely stands out when there is something tweaked about the music. Uh, mm -hmm. For instance, this is last week's episode, the season one finale. Uh, but as our mystery gang, well, just the mystery twins of Donna and James are poking around Jacoby's office, there's like a couple uh, dramatic piano hits or like, you know, you know, tick tickling the ivories out of nowhere oh, yes. that don't mm -hmm. fit yes. with the music that's currently playing over it uh, or aren't normally part of that composition. And yeah, um, my... Uh, my bagel place um <laughs> people who, who who know me in in meat space know that i have i have a reputation for uh just like being a regular at this bagel place they would occasionally put on the twin peaks soundtrack tape uh on, <laughs> on audio real, cassette. real cassette yeah um and it's interesting how that library approached the music you know every song you know be it you know, outside of like the opening, closing themes and so forth, and the ones that are specific events like in the Roadhouse, every song is you can associate it with so many different scenes. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. And I think that helps make things more cohesive. So I would like to. Yeah, and I feel like that's a very like soapy like choice aesthetically mm -hmm. um, to kind of like be recycling something like that. So wherever this revival takes us, I hope that the music fits appropriately, new and old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you guys thoughts about another aspect um, that I've thought about with the new series coming on is it's gone, you know, you know, from uh, the initially announced nine episodes to 18 episodes or over nine. They're not really they're being yeah. kind of coy <laughs> about that. And don't you guys kind of worry about the logistics of um, of one person? being in uh, in task to direct every single episode of something and keep on schedule and produce something that's in the same vein of something that's already known and loved. You know what I mean? That I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that works, but I'm also a little bit apprehensive about it as well. Yeah. I think something that we've talked about um, is kind of David Lynch's kind of hands-off approach to a lot of the episodes, particularly later episodes mm -hmm. um, and how it might be surprising uh, for certain viewers to see, you know, 18 David Lynch directed episodes. Mm -hmm. um, this episode that we're about to talk about is directed by David Lynch. Um, and I was alluding to this earlier, but my mom watched the, the episode and texted me about it. And she said, this is a direct quote here. Okay. I watched the Giants this week. Not sure who wrote or directed it, but I found it to be a different type of creativity. 
<laughs> That's uh, charitable. Yeah. Yeah. I don't um, know who 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 wrote or directed it and I'm just going to text you without <laughs> No. Um sorry Kathy, that's totally fine. Have we talked about how weird it is that both our moms are named Kathy? No, we haven't. Scott, please don't tell us that your mom's name is also Kathy cuz that it would is be not. too creepy. Okay. Alas, it's a Nancy, yes. Okay. Also, okay. oh, there's at least know. A similarity in last syllable, right? Yes, yes. A little bit, correct. yeah, yeah. And also, Blackie's sister. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but going back to the original question, I think the approach could either be like, David Lynch gets to do whatever he wants to do, and it's like brilliant and incredible, or like, we're going to kind of see um, the ways in which structure can kind of inform such like a wildly creative and imaginative process in a positive way and that absence might certainly be felt so Mm -hmm. yeah um scott have you seen firewalk with me uh yes i have okay Um, (laughs) yes i i I assumed as much but i didn't want to make an ass out of you yeah no no that's Um, fine i wasn't trying to be sarcastic but yes uh, and it's a a film that i didn't warm up to initially and it's taken time but i absolutely love it now so i feel like that's um that was the kind of general take i'd heard from fans of the show uh before i ended up watching the movie mm-hmm. um and it certainly wasn't something that after i was done watching that i was like wow that was really excellent what a <laughs> i can't believe it took me this long to come to the film um and we talked about how we think that this you know approach of writing the new series out in one chunk and then cutting it into episodes and having it all be sort of um under uh, David Lynch's directorial, you know, influence might make it more like that movie. But I've, you know, in the what week or two since we've had that discussion, mm-hmm. since I've kind of softened on that point. Like, I think that this will itself be very different, uh, not just mm-hmm. because of the 25 yeah. years of context and so forth, uh, but just that was a movie that was part of a planned like you know slate of sequels and that was Mm -hmm. plagued by you know cast members deciding that they didn't want to return and all these kind of other problems uh that probably had as much to do with shaping as it shaping it as it did with david wanting to do something different from the television so so this will be you know certainly different no matter what i bet but i'm i'm willing to you know, let my cold exterior melt a little bit and be optimistic about the the revival because it's going to happen and the people involved with it seem, who we know are involved with it seem to be excited. So mm-hmm. that's a lot better than here's this movie that's coming on the heels of a canceled TV show that right. half the cast yeah. doesn't want anything to do with. Like, that's a lot better. Yeah. yeah. And I think Mark Frost being directly involved the way he's obviously going to be, it's going to kind of rein in everything and bring it back to mm-hmm. excesses that could possibly happen. Ashley, you've mentioned that you want us to do a, a side episode or like a bonus episode of the show on Mulholland Drive, right? Yeah, I have. Um, also, you mentioned that pretty soon here in Portland, uh, they're going to be showing Blue Velvet at an yeah, actual this, theater. Yeah. We should do that. And I think we should at least touch on that after we go see it. But my question is, are we going to do a special or a couple specials on On the Air, the show that Mark <laughs> Frost and David Lynch made uh, after Twin Peaks? 
We we could certainly do that. We could also cover those uh, videos that David Lynch released through his website where he talked about the weather in L.A. Every we day. should mm-hmm. definitely watch all of those and talk about the themes. <laughs> no. Um... But just going back to the, the, the kind of episode filming format for season three really quick, I actually have started to feel a little more apprehensive primarily because this week I've been listening to the Rick and Morty director commentaries um and uh Dan Harmon is like very conscientious of like acts and act breaks and how that shapes a a sitcom which is obviously very different from an hour-long drama but I'm sort of wondering if they're if we're going to see those sort of contained arcs um and like it seems like there will there will have to be and I'm not sure kind of how those will be uh, manufactured in the in that shooting format hmm I, I feel like I might even use this episode as a reference point for episodes of Twin Peaks and I mean this one was directed by David that don't feel like they're so concerned with having clearly mm-hmm. delineated acts and dramatic beats um, or when they do seem to have those kind of touchstone moments there there's one in particular I really want to talk about this episode so let's get there sooner right. than later um, okay. <laughs> no I, I love talking about the revival uh, and potential but do I, I, don't, I don't know i don't want to like spend too much on this well you know i think no we should really be excited while you're just like now i'm apprehensive because yeah. i guess like between the two of us you and i actually our enthusiasm <laughs> has to stay at a at a, at a even That's level true. so i got more That's excited true. and you got less excited and exactly. we'll just leave it at that i didn't get less i didn't get less excited don't don't get me wrong i'm thrilled that this is happening it's just it's something that, that's in your mind like when you hear jj abrams is going to do the new star wars you're like is he going to screw it up or is it going to be awesome so it's the same kind of thing but although i'm not worried that david lynch won't deliver but you know it'll be a new experience i feel much better about knowing that david lynch will be directly involved with all of the new twin peaks than i do being like okay jj abrams is gonna start star wars off and then it's gonna pass to ryan johnson who like was responsible for some of the best episodes of breaking bad and then it's gonna pass to the guy who directed jurassic world so we definitely know that like the second new star wars movie is gonna be great it's the the other two we have questions about so well i think what it is is that they're definitely gonna be like all right episode seven is gonna be like a new hope and that it's pretty good like jj abrams can always be relied on to do one pretty good start to something and then the second one's gonna be really awesome which we can know because of ryan johnson's breaking bad history and then we'll have a a second return of the jedi (laughs) yeah i was looking for the ewoks in the next in the third one of the new trilogy so which i mean it could have been so much different because david lynch almost got i know i know oh there's a yeah there's an alternate timeline out there where that happened and then no other Star Wars movies were made again. Um, do, you, do you know who wanted to direct this season two premiere of Twin Peaks? No, do tell. Um, things that I've read and heard in a couple other podcasts um, uh, indicate Steven Spielberg sent a letter to ABC, to one of the executives at ABC, and then he had dinner with Mark Frost and really, really wanted to direct it. But then when David Lynch got wind of it, I don't think he was opposed to Spielberg directing Twin Peaks per se, but he really wanted to shape the uh, direction of the series coming back for the second season. And then by the time 
they got it going on, uh, you know, they got this, the season rolling, then I think um, Spielberg was working on Hook, and we can see what a wonderful piece of masterwork that was. Yeah, um, I don't. That's, uh, thank you for providing the context on what era Spielberg this was, because yes. era Spielberg probably shouldn't be anywhere near Twin Peaks. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, it certainly would have been interesting, but I can see why David wanted to direct this episode, and I can kind of see like the David Lynch cogs like at work in this whole. Uh, Absolutely. Episode. Let's start. Let's start talking about the episode proper, and it's good that we talked about Star Wars because this episode's name is "May the Giant Be With You." That's I not don't... the real name. <laughs> episode eight. Okay. okay. Yes. All right. Um, and the initial. Well, this is the. I think only the second time in the series we've seen the extended credits. Um, yes. Both, you know, kind of pomp and circumstance, pomp and circumstance for, hey, it's season two, everybody. But also, a lot of people in this episode gotta gotta get those names in there somehow. Um, but it always warms my heart to see the additional establishing shots around North Bend, um, the giant sawed off, you know, chunk of tree sitting on a train mm-hmm. car and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, diving back into the series, and then the like weirdest eight minute scene. I think, like, I think arguably weirder than the clearly dreamy otherworldly right. scene at the end of episode three um, for sure <laughs> then the weirdest eight minute like what's happening scene <laughs> at the start um yeah yeah um it's interesting and i know i've like said this before and this is totally just because it's set in the great northern to a certain extent but like that whole scene really reminded me of uh the shining mm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the ang- the camera angles for sure and uh, the slow, deliberate pace, that's one thing that Lynch and um, Kubrick had in common was their very deliberate pacing of certain scenes. And they like to let scenes go on and prolong to kind of give you a, sometimes a sense of ease, but a lot of times to give you a greater sense of unease. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. This is a slight tangent, but um, earlier this year for um, a college lit theory course, we read Eisenstein's Theory of Montage, and this was conceived in the early 20th century when film was just starting, and it was really at that point you were still filming a play being performed from one angle um, to a certain extent, and then people were starting to do these interesting cut shots. Um, and so what Eisenstein was saying is that like this is like the way in which like Uh, directors can kind of build up tension in the audience and kind of the effect it has on the spectator. But I think that um, montages have become so commonplace and quick cuts have become so commonplace that it's really the long languishing scenes that cause kind of unease and discomfort in the viewing experience. And I think that's really valuable for this scene in particular. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I really wanted to be like, oh, I already can't keep up with this conversation, but I've seen, oh. <laughs> but I've, I've seen Battleship Potemkin analyzed through like early montage and that kind of film theory. So I can't even, I can't even claim, I can't even claim ignorance here of all this stuff. I really recommend Eisenstein's theory of montage. It's like very readable and like very interesting in his kind of breakdown of different types of montage and the effect on the viewer. Um, but it's just interesting how... Um, that's kind of just become subverted in, in modern TV and cinema, thinking about the tracking shot in True Detective season one um, and the kind of shooting style of Birdman this year kind of proves the novelty of the long shot and the long scene. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Hello. Um, <laughs> we just lost about five minutes of audio there after I said, yeah, um, uh, 
and we were continuing to talk about the the uh the opening, the opening scene of, the opening scene of the episode and i guess it could have been worse we could have lost more so let's just get into the episode let's get into may the giant be with you and talk about the initial scene for a second time and hope that the audio uh continues recording on our end sorry about this scott we're, we're so unprofessional our first <laughs> guest Okay. Of course, that the only time and the first time that's ever happened has to be the time when we have like a guest. Yeah. If you couldn't tell by our two hour long running times, we've never actually lost audio before. <laughs> so, um, but um, the point that I think I was going to bring up just about the novelty of the long shots is the discomfort that it causes in the viewer, um, particularly in my experience, because, you know, no, I knew from having seen this episode uh, previously that Cooper was wearing a bulletproof vest. But as the scene went on, I really started to question like my own recollection and say, like, is he wearing a bulletproof vest? Like, is he really, you know, not mortally wounded? Um, which I think was like, you know, a pretty effective choice on Lynch's part. Um, yeah, you have to spend eight minutes with Cooper bleeding out on the, on the floor, no matter what, even if you know how the scene's going to play out. So I think that testifies to the effectiveness as a choice. Um, in our brief amount of lost audio, uh, we got to talking about the actor who plays the, uh, old waiter, uh, Hank Warden, who's actually, uh, as, as Scott, uh, gave the assist on a uh, country western actor who was in uh, a bunch of john wayne movies and here he is in one of his uh you know very much later career roles and yeah right where our audio cut out we were asking you scott about what it was like to see this you know this segment as the season premiere to season two uh it as it was airing instead of like you know binge watching through the show as ashley and i have done in the mm-hmm. in, in our experience yeah, that's the one aspect of Twin Peaks that uh, I'm sure gets lost on people that are able to consume it at their own pace now because, um, you know, it initially came out um, Easter Sunday of 1990, so it was on for those eight weeks, and then it was, you know, almost four months until the end of September when it came back, so that was, you know, that was really, really um, a long wait. I mean, I watched the episodes over and over because I had them on uh, VHS that I'd recorded dutifully and analyzed every tidbit. So the anticipation of that, and then in the media, it was just huge. I mean, it was on, you know, the girls were on Rolling mm-hmm. Stone magazine. Uh, David Lynch was on Time magazine. It was in all uh, features on TV Guide and everything. It was just uh, talk shows, um, and the uh, actors were showing up and appearing on uh, different talk shows and stuff like that at the time. So the buildup to this season premiere was massive. And the expectations, I'm sure, with lots of people watching it were, okay, well, they didn't say who the killer was the end of this last season. They're going to say it tonight because that's what the show is all about. We're going to get answers, and that's that. So for the show to start with Cooper on the floor like that and the old waiter for what seemed like 45 minutes, which was only about seven minutes – you know, that defies expectations of the audience, but I think in a really good way, but not in a way that lots of mainstream viewers at the time were ready to accept. And I, um, you know, I had friends and family that I'd sometimes watch it with, or they watched it separately and talk about it. And they were like, yeah, I stopped watching at that time. And that's an unfortunate thing that happened, but it did happen. And of course, when things heat up in the next few episodes and the audience did come back to find out what's going on, but, um, that was definitely off-putting to a lot of people. Not to me, though. I went with it, and I thought it was. You were I stoked. thought it was great. I mean, <laughs> you I were just it, like, I was stoked because 
yeah, this episode just gives you more of what you've been waiting for. I mean, I don't need to know who killed Laura Palmer. I just enjoy being in that world and seeing all the actors and characters and, right. and that sort Whereas of thing. So mainstream viewers are like, warm milk? <laughs> I'm done. I'm going to go yeah. watch Cheers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, so let's talk about the... Uh, I am curious though. Like, was there a lot of speculation in the gap between season one and season two? Because yeah, I know, I leading know up, about that four months. Yeah, like leading up to the final season of Breaking Bad, you know, everyone was going on talk shows and talking about like, is Walter gonna live? Is Walter gonna die? Um, and it was such like a cultural moment, and people really had their theories about. All right, you've dropped your phone for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the actors showed up um, on like a. Uh, various talk shows and the tonight show lucy was on the tonight show and david letterman and 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 all this type of thing and of course they want to know about the experience but then they they always are jabbing them are we going to find out who killed laura palmer and they were all very coy about it and they know that the that's what brought people to the program i mean nobody had any illusions for any other reason um, than that but at at the same time i think they just kind of were relishing the the attention and and uh and what it did for for the show the notoriety for the show and um they just you know wanted to keep i know david lynch i've read things he would have never wanted to answer who the killer was i mean he really wanted the world of twin peaks to just continue and to just evolve into ongoing mysteries that were all intertwined with laura palmer so that wasn't for everyone at the time but now it's just funny that in retrospect how everything's changed with what people expect from their form uh dramatic series like this and uh, twin peaks fits right in with basically all those type of shows now Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting i think we definitely have to do an episode where we talk about kind of the influence of twin peaks i was talking to uh, my work friend earlier this week who hasn't seen twin peaks but said that she was under the impression that Gilmore Girls was very influenced by Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All the crazy dream sequences in Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Yeah. That time, that, that time when Melissa McCarthy just, like, spends a 15-minute long scene talking talking to a log. It's really great. I have no idea if you're being sarcastic or not because I have not seen Gilmore Girls. Um, well, there's a really great podcast you could watch along with. Um, anyway... Uh, Gilmore so, Girls, really? Yeah, no? really? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm watching Pretty Little Liars right now, and I totally see some of the influence. It's really, I think, Twin Peaks was kind of the start of the, the dead girl genre. Yes. Where there's a central mystery around a missing and or dead, you know, young, attractive white woman. Mm, de- Desperate, Housewives, Desperate Housewives even owed some to Twin Peaks. And of That's course, you true. know, Kyle was on that. And one of its, and one of its standout actors. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So let's let's before we move on to the rest of this uh, double long we should mention episode uh, ninety minute episode uh, the giant when he appears to Cooper before uh, yoinking Cooper's ring uh, tells him three uh, three little snippets of information that he the giant says Cooper will know will come to be true and then he will return the ring. Um, and those three snippets of information are, I have them written down. Um, yeah. I also have them. <laughs> Great. Awesome. We're also <laughs> prepared. Uh, I'm going to do it backwards, though. Without chemicals, he points. The owls are not what they seem. Uh, and then, well, I have this paraphrase, but just man in a smiling bag. And um, Plus, there's a bonus clue. I, 
There is. Oh, there you go. There's a bonus clue. Oh, God. What's the bonus clue? I think Leo in my... locked inside a hungry horse. There is a clue at Leo's house. Yes. That's, that one's pretty. There is a clue at Leo's <laughs> house. It's like a little. That's as explicit as the giant kind of ever well, gets. Well, plus he yeah, requires medical attention. Yes. Well, yes. I think, I think we don't give the giant points for that one. Anyone can see that he requires medical attention at that point. Um, except for the waiter, <laughs> evidently. Um yeah uh i think about how like that at least in terms of like the very beginning of season two like that's the that's the hook are these are these snippets of information um compared to as as much as you like to bring up true detective and breaking bad ashley i shoot slightly lower and bring up lost yes um but i i think about you know how this raises questions but it like keeps it kind of it keeps scope limited like this is clearly like some kind of coded message or riddle and there will be there is the potential for these things to be explained versus you know how a season like think of a season two premiere of lost where they like look inside the hatch or season three when they reveal the others village in the middle of the island it's just like raising you know a nigh limitless amount of questions all at once for the sake of this like big shock scene Mm -hmm. versus this very deliberately paced Cooper is lying on the ground, lying on the floor of the Great Northern, bleeding out scene that has a very particular payload in terms of the information it's going to sprinkle in. Um, it's a, I, I think it's a, I think it's a like a very restrained approach, and I like it for that reason. Because um, Twin Peaks had a reputation where they could have they could have opened season two in any number of like really like gotcha ways, and this one just like is note perfect for the show i think yeah they, they could have uh, opened in a way that as much as i like mark frost's uh directing on the season finale that was so much more of a conventional television formula show and of course it had it was a season finale so all season finales usually up to stakes and have cliffhangers but that seemed like it was running at a pace of like 15 on a scale of 1 to 10 whereas this is like david lynch just going okay we had that excitement now um, I'm, I'm sorry i'm co-opting your david lynch and i can't do it as well as you matt um, oh, okay. I will try. Um, Wait, what are you talking about? We have David on the show. Yeah, oh, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but so when, when when Lynch comes back, everything just comes to a dead halt. But and then slowly goes on and on. And I just I, I love that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I think it was such a deliberate choice on Lynch's part to kind of set up these little kind of tendrils that take on, you know, their own life as the series goes on. But it kind of um, narrows the scope uh, in a certain sense to this this parameter that he's setting um, in the season two premiere. Now, Ashley, let's get into the conversation we cut short last week because before we even see uh, what's going to happen to Cooper, we cut away in one-eyed jacks um, mm-hmm. and start to resolve uh, or start to move on from one of our other cliffhangers involving Audrey and her dad, Ben. Um I guess this is now the time for like a fuller discussion of that whole scenario. Um, what are you, I want? I'm really curious as to what your thoughts on it are because I have like I have you know opinions on how this is resolved and like where the storyline goes from here. Um, but I want to know what your like particular take on the scene is. Um, I mean, it's a pretty disturbing scene in my opinion. Um, you know, Audrey is obviously you know, not consenting to what's going on. Um, and for Ben, that's just sort of a, 
it's sort of like titillating um you know he says that she really knows how to like catch like a man's interest because she's kind of in his mind you know playing hard to get um and obviously i think that's you know very predatory um and it's i really gross it's, yeah it's, it's icky. really gross yeah <laughs> it's icky icky is yeah that's i i agree 100 percent. there's the weird like it's not just that like ben is being like oh you're being cagey and being a tease then he like brings it to like like openly invokes the age difference there by uh doing the the three little pigs like i'm gonna huff and puff and blow your house down and Mm -hmm. it's just like it's 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 not leaving anything on the table in terms of missed there's no missed opportunities in terms of making this not like a very like not gut-wrenching but um cringe-worthy scene is you're just like oh please oh please god like get find a way out of this um and as much praise as i like to heap on jerry uh at all times um i i won't i will thank jerry for for removing ben from this situation but i'm not like saying like you know this is not a heroic act and there's and there's it's really like there's nothing that audrey could have done yeah um and this is the most we've seen audrey in in that sort of situation where like you know compare it to when uh blackie was going to kick her out of one-eyed jacks and then audrey like makes a way out of it by doing the the cherry stem thing like this is a situation where clearly uh she's in over her head now and got lucky um, well, she's able to dangle her sexuality as a tool and use that as a power play. But obviously, in a situation where if she were to take that route, it would lead to horrible consequences because it's her own father. So that uh, has a whole other it layer. Just, it's just only like it only goes far enough to stall. And then luckily, like Jerry being the hyperactive shit that he is like needs his brother to, 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 you know, zip it up and get out there. And, um, didn't you think Jerry was yeah. particularly a new, a new side of him when he was interacting with Blackie and he was dangling the drugs in front of her? It was a much mm-hmm. more hardcore sleazy side than we've seen of him before. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I don't want to heap so much praise on him. Cause I kind of, uh, I, I do remember the scene, but for the way it ends, which is, seemed for network television at that time uh you can testify as to whether or not this was like kind of pushing it uh but just for for it to end on blackie pulling out the surgical tubing and being like about to shoot up yeah uh (laughs) seemed a little bit much for what abc yeah yeah, it absolutely Um, was yeah yeah um but yeah i you know jerry uh i think both ben and jerry and even aside from the scene um with ben and audrey uh take a turn a little bit darker this episode and maybe that's maybe that's david's interpretation of these characters coming through more and when we see kind of the sillier uh excess and just you know sort of you know in a way playful playful bad guy representation of these two that's some of the influence of the other uh creatives involved but uh they're bad people this episode through and through later on talking about getting like basically rubbing out Catherine and mm-hmm. being responsible for the mill fire there i don't like i'm not like oh man these are like 
the fun evil people like at all um and we had a discussion about this quite recently as we went to see a movie you mm-hmm. and i actually oh yeah we did about you know the extent to which um people want to identify with the villains in their film and television um you know and we got we got very deep into that i don't know yeah. how much we want to get into that on the podcast but but uh, I, I definitely feel that for ben and jerry in season one there's uh partially because the joy of it is you get to learn more about what the goings on are in the town like who's double crossing whom uh but there there's definitely a uh a kind of playfulness in their behavior that's like weird and makes them interesting bad guys that here is just kind of more exchanged with like they're just they're not on the level they're bad people and that weird playfulness instead comes through with leland yeah who we know as of season one has just murdered a man and then is gonna go around singing all episode um yeah the murder of jacques renault definitely seems like it's kind of lifted a certain burden off of leland's shoulders although his hair does turn white overnight snow white Mm. Mm -hmm. um yeah i for the life of me i tried i was like humming it to myself earlier today uh but i have to say ray wise does a very good job enunciating throughout the entire the entire ditty he sings that song is almost like an alliteral alliteration exercise yeah Uh, i have it written out here Oh, Mary's dotes and dozy dotes and little lambsy divey, a kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? <laughs> now, if the words sound queer and funny to you, a little bit jumbled and jivey, say Mare's Mare's e oats. oats. Come on, Ashley, we're doing it. We're doing a bit now. <laughs> and does eat oats. Wow. You're, you're like I don't know it. any so of these. Okay. okay. And little lambs. And little lambs eat I'm really looking forward to the <laughs> message from your mom about your beautiful singing voice this week, Ashley. <laughs> that was all a ploy. I was trying to get you to go with that. Um, but Raywise is giving like the performance of a lifetime in this episode. Absolutely. It's just so like delightfully unhinged. And I think you're right. It is that like playfulness that kind of makes Ben and Jerry fun that we're kind of seeing um, kind of being channeled into Leland. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't uh, for a second like play this game where I'm just like, ah, yeah, like I want to sing the song, but I don't want to be Leland who just suffocated a man in his hospital bed. Like uh, we were talking about it in the context of, of Breaking Bad and Walter White Heisenberg and people who wear Heisenberg T-shirts and, and that whole sort of thing. And then linking back to, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, your thesis on Lolita, um, where... Like the, I I think part of why it's why I find Ben and Jerry to be fun bad guys, at least in the way they're depicted in season one, is because when they're not talking about evil things, they are patently ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like they're t- they're they're enjoying their brie and baguette sandwiches in a like totally absurd way, and they're like one hundred percent representative of excess. Like Ben looks like your typical, at least in my mind, like. 80s film villain businessman uh whereas jerry's just like constantly wearing this like weird ass designer clothing and like they're fun to watch because they're fun to hate not because you actually want to like 
like the show i don't think is actually trying to build empathy uh for these two and i gotta respect that move right um and what a lot of my thesis was about um and a lot of what we had been talking about oh no it is okay okay it's still going it's still going i was like "Mm, that looks like it stopped but i guess it just stopped scrolling okay yeah (laughs) anyway um but a lot of like what my thesis was kind of like uh like kind of running up against was this theory of aesthetic disinterestedness that's like pretty um prevalent in like uh like liter- literary theory and like art history uh from like the 20th century moving forward um which was just sort of this idea that like in order to fully uh, fully aesthetically appreciate a work of art or have an aesthetic experience you had to be personally disengaged from a work um and then that kind of like led into this idea that like that one has to kind of like give oneself over to the narrative um and it's it's characterization and it's characters um and that would lend itself to saying that like uh walter white is a power fantasy and that's how that show is meant to be watched in the moment um and i think you could make like a similar argument about why people enjoy watching ben and jerry but that's certainly not my experience and i don't think it's the only way to uh you know, experience the show or experience, you know, any work that incorporates that sort of like ethically a amoral, uh, those amoral characters and storylines. And I think Twin Peaks is going to play with that uh, without giving anything away about um, major characters where you perceive them as one way and then they change from, a, you know, from the protagonist to the antagonist. And that's a interesting shift on how the, that affects the story and, and the characters overall. Yeah. And I think I think it's a show that despite its its soap trappings or like maybe because and it wants to play within that space, it has characters that do bad things that I don't think are just like patently bad people. Like I I feel comfortable in saying like Ben and Jerry Horn are bad people. Uh, They just burnt down this mill with the intent of killing Catherine, which itself was a double cross, which somehow seems it's definitely as bad, if not more bad, where you're just like, we're going to be in business and then, you know, go to Hank of all people. And anyway, Mm -hmm. um, there's a a scene I want to talk about later in this very episode where someone who is is not one of the uh, golden upstanding uh, members of the Twin Peaks community, if there are anybody, really. We <laughs> talked about how affairs are the number one pastime here yes. in town. Um, but one of the not upstanding members of the community has a really like tender moment where you can see them maybe cons- reconsidering their uh, their decisions. But we'll, we'll get there in time. Um, can we talk about, finally, what happens to Cooper? Does he survive? <laughs> um <laughs> Um, what I actually really liked was the, the folding up of the vest thing. So he's wearing the bulletproof vest, but he is exposed. And I think that that was sort of a nice balance between like, he's fine. Don't worry about it. That was just like a, a season finale gag and like, you know, introducing some real semi debilitating stakes, um, into the, that storyline. Yeah. Um, the image of him on the floor with, you know, the two shots and then the one that's clearly bleeding through, it's like striking enough. And there's like the little bit of, you know, kind of imagery symbolism at play where it's, you know, yes, by having the folded up vest, it's like Cooper is not, you know, we talk about the mystical, magical sort of version of Cooper that 
throws rocks at bottles and so forth, but he does have vulnerabilities uh, that kind of come from within his mm-hmm. own choice to try and itch his, uh, uh, scratch his itch rather. But I also love how quickly it's resolved. Uh, like there are stakes and then um, the shot of, uh, uh, I guess, I think it's all three of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Harry, Hawk, and Andy. Or Lucy, uh, Lucy. Appearing in the... Lucy as well. Lucy gives um, a recap of who's uh, injured and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. then when in their hospital, oh my god. Yeah. The... But when oh, they do, sorry. when they when they're at his door, yeah. when they just and pop it looks in. like a little like Charlie's Angels. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say it's a little bit like here's a bookhouse boy. Well, not Andy, but here's <laughs> here's the boys on the scene. Um, uh, also, I gotta give it to Andy at the top of the show for his dedication to continuing to talk into the uh into the phone being like is he gonna pick up is he gonna pick up it's like what do they have a flat tire like could they not just drive over to the great northern immediately um but yeah lucy's recap i'm glad that's like it's immediately going from is cooper gonna survive to we see him on the table he's the main character so like the signal is like he's fine Mm -hmm. to then even like ramping that up to the point where the audience might be uncomfortable with it because not only does Lucy then give this breakdown of uh, the cliffhangers, essentially season one, uh, kind of heightening the stakes, but then Cooper's just like, I'm going to get up. Like, uh, give me a couple hours to get dressed. This is what that scene ends on, and I love it. Um, the show doesn't want to waste time now on, yeah. well, this, on this thing that, like, it doesn't want to waste time on, you know, let's have an episode where Cooper's bedridden. Um it wants to, to, you know, at least start addressing some of what was set up at the end of the season one finale. And it's also then played through the rest of the episode. Uh, I love Kyle McLaughlin's, you know, kind of uh, wheezy limp throughout the rest of the episode because it it does at least, you know, it provides a sense of here's the main character of the show affected by the events of this climactic finale um, but not in a way where it's just like, and now we have to have him confined to this one space or something. Um, I think it's an interesting decision, mm-hmm. at least. It's as realistic as it think... can be. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Lucy's recap kind of reveals um, a difference in priorities between Mark Frost and David Lynch. As we know, Mark Frost wrote and directed the season one finale, and now this is this episode is story by David Lynch and Mark Frost, teleplay by Mark Frost, directed by David Lynch. And in a sense, we're seeing kind of the threads from the, the first season finale, which could have definitely informed all of season two and just been, you know, the storylines for season two. Those are getting wrapped up very quickly and effectively as these new um, kind of spookier, uh, more supernatural tracks are being laid down simultaneously. Yeah. Um god I, I i had it in my head and it just it just vanished my my next thing i wanted to address um because there's more to talk about with the hospital but i don't want to get there quite yet but also let's not feel like we're confined to chronological structuring is there anything that that uh you want to uh transition to scott well i was just going to go back to the scene where we saw leland's hair hair turned white with uh mary Dotes. um mm-hmm. What about this scene with Madeline? With uh, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. that's kind um, of a biggie. Yeah, uh, Madeline and uh, oh god, Sarah. Now I'm, 
Sarah, Sarah Grace Palmer. Zabriskie, who I we always... haven't who we haven't seen her in a minute, yeah. and I'm glad that she's back. Yeah, she she has some some great scenes in this episode. I always just want to call her Grace Zabriskie because every time I want to talk about her, I want to just talk about her amazing ability to scream. But no screaming here. Instead, Maddie screaming uh, because of the dream, and then sort of waking vision she has of blood on the carpet of the Palmer residence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now I feel like we have enough amass between Sarah Palmer and uh, Maddie to start talking about like, and this is, you know, we have a giant in this episode. Do we think, and this is like less analytical, more like theorizing, like when you watch this, do you think that there's something going on with a particular attenuation of, you know, be it a family in this in the town or the people of Twin Peaks to this sort of supernatural goings on, because it seems like a fairly regular occurrence for some. Yeah, I would say that um, you know they've already established that um, Laura had dreams and, and visions to a certain extent uh, when uh, Donna was telling James, and then said that you know Sarah had those visions as well. And so I think that that kind of falls in line with um, it would be natural to assume that Maddie might have a propensity for that type of ability to whether she realizes that this may have very well been the first instance that she's been picking up or seeing anything that was, um, you know, so overtly out of the norm for her. So uh, being in Twin Peaks and with everything that's going on, I Mm -hmm. think is probably amplifying that and maybe being around Sarah because like when uh, Cooper said he didn't want to be there for the police sketch um, of Bob, um, he said, I didn't want to be there because I'm a strong sender. So there could be some of that metaphysical stuff going on as well. Right. And and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Maddie indicated she knew when something bad had happened to Laura. She had like a feeling come over her. This is also, this is, yes, awesome. Very, very twinning, very twinning like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now we can, and now we can talk about um, uh, the thing I alluded to earlier, the, the kind of troublemaker character who gets a sympathetic turn in this episode. I want to talk about Major Briggs and Bobby's uh, scene together in uh the double r Mm -hmm. um because i think we just i think we might have actually all of us hit on all the points where in something maybe sort of extrasensory or along those lines is invoked and like alluded to uh either in scenes or like verbally by characters um but major briggs just calls his son over to the table and starts to talk about this not a dream but a vision he had um Mm -hmm. about uh him and bobby Mm -hmm. and that's of a different you know tone already because we're not talking about something that he like you know it's not a waking vision uh he's very careful to say that this is significant it's not just it's not just cataloging of memories and that kind of thing and reorganization um so whether or not we watching this or hearing this you know want to believe it is we are we are given that this character you know who other like i don't know other shows when you have the major the major is like the 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 sort of stern rational one Mm -hmm. um but major briggs is nothing but like kind and Mm open-minded and like almost kind of new agey especially in this scene um with his you know with his beliefs and how he wears them on his sleeve um so by by saying this was a vision, 
uh, he is he's putting it on the line that this is important to him, that he believes that this is core to his being, and then tells Bobby about this amazing, you know, thing he saw that, you know, gives him real hope for Bobby and for hope for their relationship. And Bobby starts openly weeping. And this is the guy who mm-hmm. not not like 24 hours ago planted three ounces of cocaine in james's bike like he's not a good guy but i think that bobby is a character who's treated by the show as someone who is conflicted um Mm -hmm. who probably if he could really stop himself would just try to live a normal life you know with shelly and 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 have that um but the way he even got to the things that he might be bringing him happiness, like Shelly, is kind of by being the bad boy and cannot escape that. And so I think it's like, I really like that scene. It kind of, it surprised me again, this viewing of the show. Um, it's not one that had really stuck out to me before, but in this watch of the episode, I was I was uh, struck by um, just how how raw of a moment that is and then it's immediately followed up by bobby realizing oh shit did hank realize i saw him shot leo or saw him shoot leo like (laughs) like that he gets this moment of like kind of you know peace and or introspection and maybe being able to hope for something better for himself and then is immediately confronted by this person who uh is capable of killing and probably would uh, if he knew that Bobby saw him. Um, he can't get out. Mm-hmm. That scene also is like one of those scenes for a character when they have some sort of epiphany or big, broad emotional moment that makes you worry. Like when I first saw that, I was like, is something going to happen to Major Briggs? Like, is he going to like walk away or die or be hit by a bus or get shot right then and there? It seemed very much like a character send off before. Um, And I had a note here that just said um, best scene ever, like acting wise. I think that uh, Don Davis, who played Major Briggs, was just fantastic in that scene. And uh, and Dana Ashbrook. Yeah. And and he was Rose of the Occasion for sure. Both yeah, fantastic. That that single tear was like was not cheesy to me at all, uh, despite single tears usually being. Mm-hmm. Now, Ashley, was the was the cut to that say uh, to that uh, setting where the guy just says, "Damn, that's goodbye." <laughs> was that cheesy? Because that took that was like that almost felt like it was a, a meta moment in and of itself, where it's just like David Lynch being like, "Yep, we're the pie show." Did you? <laughs> Here, here's your pie mention. Um, um, but then again, there's a much yeah, that... gentler pie call out between Shelly and Norma. Yeah, uh, well, so and know. also Major Briggs is eating that huckleberry mm-hmm. pie at the top of that. Mm. Um, but that the the kind of um, jarring difference between those two moments in that one scene reminded me of the kind of balance of tragedy and humor that we saw in the funeral episode. Um, obviously mm. on a much smaller scale, but I think that like, the show can mix those two elements very well, and I'm glad to see to see that in this episode. Yeah, um, like we Shelley's scenes this episode, we see her alone in the hospital watching the news report of uh, the mill burning down. Which, as someone like who doesn't normally get like caught up in like how did they do that? Like, what was the production behind that? I really want to know where they shot the 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 footage of the burnt down mill because like. It looks like there's a burned down mill behind that news reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know, I know that the, one... the actual mill that they filmed in the first season, that did burn between the first and second seasons. And I don't know if... What? Yes. yes. I don't know if they actually had footage I... of that after the fact or not. 
now I have a theory that Mark Frost went to <laughs> extreme lengths to get the show to play the way he wanted to. And that's also uh, that's Mark Frost it? playing the news reporter in that scene as well. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, shit. Um, I have a, a fun factoid to talk about with regards to side actors at the end of this episode, too. Um, oh, in our last bit, we didn't even mention that, yeah... Uh, we lost it that the giant is uh is lurch from the adams family <laughs> which is a cool mm-hmm. cool connection yeah um, um but yeah so shelly well there's another thing that happens in the diner kind of concurrently this is definitely the episode of like important conversations are which you talking is, about like, the sunglasses i am talking oh, about i don't want to talk about the sunglasses the uh, sunglasses wait, is actually the one I part i was have, hoping we would skip over like, this episode okay well i just have a note which is that i think donna is single white female femaleing laura yeah let's let's uh, talk we need to talk about uh okay. donna in this episode let's talk about, let's talk about donna's Oh, okay. So Donna's definitely like coming back with like a different look. Like most of the other actors look the same, but there's something like very visibly different about Donna, not just in the writing. Um, and uh, you know she's stolen Laura's boyfriend, and now she's stolen Laura's sunglasses, and it seems like she's stealing Laura's kind of bad girl shtick. Yeah, absolutely. And I do know uh, from reading some, uh, there's a really good book book by this uh, guy named Brad Dukes. It's called Reflections, an Oral History of Twin Peaks, and he's interviewed over a hundred people that were both writers, producers, directors, actors, and everything um, from from the series and the film. Uh, not David Lynch; he didn't participate, but pretty much everyone else. And um, apparently, Laura Flynn Boyle, in addition to not wanting uh, Cooper and Audrey to date, also wanted her character to not be the good girl next door. And she definitely wanted, she thought the attention that Cheryl and Finn was getting as Audrey um, and with her sexy image and everything that she wanted a little bit of that herself. So that's why the overnight change happened. Well, um, be careful what you wish for, because if there was anything about this episode that I desperately wanted to just like skip past, it was, uh, because it feels like, and I almost want to say that like Laura Flynn Boyle is purposely acting to this end, but if if this is actually something that she wanted for her character, it doesn't come off great because it comes off as Donna trying really, really hard to be cool. Um, Tragically so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and oh god, the scene with James in the jail is just. <sighs> and to think, to think. I mean, the, the way the lines were written feel like very tongue in cheek, uh, with regards to, like the idea of like Donna like. Becoming... How'd you get so tense when I started, started smoking? smoking. <laughs> oh my god! Um, and to think that we haven't even gotten to what I think is universally recognized as the worst scene involving James and Donna. <laughs> I love that scene. I'm sorry to say. It's okay. It's okay. Um, but that's I, I that understand. Scene. I want to talk. I want to talk about my girl Shelly, um, who has survived the mill fire. Uh, tally on the mill fire. Shelly is alive. Pete is alive. We don't know what happened to Catherine. Um, and we, Josie is considered missing earlier. Yeah, but but not like not related. Not, a, to not presumed at the mill. the mill. Yeah. Right. Um, so Shelly crying, seeing Mark Frost on the news. <laughs> um, uh, versus bobby's visit um i guess i guess shelly has kind of three scenes because norma visits and is very sweet and Mm -hmm. i love i actually love these small moments that we get between uh shelly and norma um i'm 
I'm resonating more with those now on this watch than I have in previous watches because it's just like, and maybe this is partially influenced by uh, me focusing more on Ed and Nadine, but just like to think about the 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 lower the like quote unquote lower stakes domestic drama that Shelley and Norma have both been through, but that they can actually relate to each other on uh-huh. is refreshing. Um, given the backdrop of like the murder mystery, yeah. I think um, mm-hmm. it 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 makes it makes me it, it it definitely always has been, but it it helps fill in the edges about the town of Twin Peaks and makes it feel um, believable in its own in its own way. Um, so offering to bring pie and Shelly's like bring the whole pie and it's like that's my girl Shelly, but I you know as much as I want to give Bobby his little moment in the spotlight this episode his gross playing doctor thing <laughs> when your girlfriend just had like like her, like her lungs are like hurting right now um, if Pete's to be believed it's like taping having your lips taped to the tailpipe of a bus um, this is not the time for fooling around the hospital okay like. I mean, she was also, like, put in the mill by her abusive husband and, like, left for dead. Like, and it's not like she's not, like, happy to see Bobby, but, like, Bobby showing his, like, true teenage boy colors there for a while. Yeah. It's just, like, my girlfriend survived the mill fire. I'm really turned on. Like, nah, just, like, <laughs> give it a rest, man. We can't expect after the, the, the emotional breakthrough with his father that he's gonna, you know, carry that over to everything in his life. He still has to be a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um but but touching on the shelly norma friendship i find their friendship so refreshing because it's like very positive and supportive and also like extremely honest and they're very open with each other which you really don't see um with relationships in twin peaks yeah they don't keep secrets they go and get their hair done and like actually share openly amongst themselves about what they're going through and i dig that so much um you like it's it sucks to say you don't even see that on tv a lot uh even today i feel like in some cases where it's just like we don't want to have this kind of that's how they heighten the stakes because it's like who knows what and how are they finding out yeah it's just like oh yeah um uh it feels sort of like you know a misogynistic tendency to be like in writing to be like oh they have to like you know and it's, it's even at some level have to be competing or keeping secrets from another and like not feel like no like norman shelley like our best buds basically yeah. and i i that's really refreshing well, very um, very maternal that, kind of thing yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. i think norma really is like a, a mentor for shelley and really s- yeah. tries to look out for her i saw someone hoping uh that uh, shelley is the owner of the double r in the <gasps> revival i would um, love that I have, I, I don't like talking too much about like where we hope our favorite characters would be in the revival show because some of that might be considered spoilery. Uh, spoilery. Um, I'm gonna say this though. I've been holding on to it for eight episodes already. I really hope that in the revival, Andy is the mayor of Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> I want that so bad. That would be within wow. the realm of possibility. Um, that's so perfect. That's like when Jerry becomes the mayor of a uh, Pawnee and Parks and Recreation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it would it, totally ideal. Um, I want the the underdog. Uh, oh man, Andy! This episode. Poor Andy. Um, <sighs> Andy and Albert uh, uh, Roserfeld. Rose Rosenflower. Rosenflower. Rosenflowers. That's what it is. Rosenflowers. Um, uh, God, 
I, I, I like uh, that this reinforces Andy's like kind of above average tolerance for pain um getting smacked in the face with that board like he got smacked in the head with the rock and so forth um uh not a high point after having uh shot uh Jacques. Jacques last episode um to be smacked in the face with the board but still advancing advancing the police work so good on andy <laughs> and then this the great scene uh where cooper leaves Andy and Lucy with the box oh, of back issues of Flesh World, uh, given their their relationship strife. Um, I like that. That's like that's not being uh, left at the wayside in service of ex- you know exploring what happened with the other cliffhangers. Like the relationship tension uh, between Andy and Lucy is still being foregrounded at least a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and to great effect, Lucy's reaction at opening the Flesh World. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Andy's greatest triumph, though, is definitely like standing up to to Albert in, mm-hmm. in this episode. Yeah, I, I want to talk about Albert a lot. Um, I forgot like how great of a character he was. Like, I remember that like you really liked him, but like when he reappeared, I was like, oh yeah, you're you're really? fun. Because Miguel Ferrer, whenever I see him pop up in anything now, I'm just like, that's who I'm watching. I don't like that's who I'm watching in this thing now because that's how. Uh, great of a character i think albert is um and how great of a job he does with him and this gets into the other thing i want to talk about and scott you mentioned the hospital food yes and you'll have to bear with me here because i'm i feel like i'm kind of getting out in the weeds with this one um but so we see i think three times in this episode uh shots of this disgusting tray of hospital food yeah um uh with when they're talking to jacoby it's looked at and hayward's like is that's is that what's making him feel weird um Shelly turns it down and then Pete uh like literally gags at the at the scent of it. Um so this is food in a show that's actually been very concerned with food that is not glorified. Um mm-hmm. it is not kind of uh given praise in any sort of way. And I th- I think this is the first example we've seen in the show so far of repulsive food am i wrong is does anything else come to mind well and jerry one? jerry also described something disgusting earlier this well, uh, it's yeah. pretty disgusting i understand how that would be disgusting especially to you because it's yep. made out of a head of some animal <laughs> um but that's a delicacy for some I, people so yeah even i as, yeah. A, as a meat eater would yeah be, i was gonna ask like is that is that no. tempting to you or is that just me <laughs> speaking for all meat eaters ashley i can say um I wouldn't eat that, yeah. but yeah, but the I, uh, yeah, it's he has the, uh, the for absolute that, opposite that of the glorification and beauty of food, and especially since the food at the hospital has its own sound effect. You know, that's kind of <laughs> yeah. Oh God, the little burbling. Yeah. Yes. So, where I, where I'm going with this and how it relates to Albert is that food is like definitely given kind of this restorative, rejuvenating. Uh, place or reverence in oh god please don't okay good we're still recording (laughs) i just saw my screen went to the screensaver and i got so worried so food uh everyone in twin peaks is into coffee Mm -hmm. everyone in twin peaks is into pie everybody hates this disgusting looking hospital food it's the first food that we've seen uh that is 
it, 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 that is not good and it's supposed to be good for you it's hospital food it's what they give you when you're ailing um and yet it is not up to it um it, it well you would think right like you can just make like the almost seinfeld-esque like hospital foods terrible observation yeah but i think that they're like it but it stands out because like why are we seeing this three times like why is this a theme of this episode yeah. this gross place of, plate of food like it seems like an obvious joke yeah um and i think there might be more to it and this is where i'm getting kind of out there is that uh cooper's like like sort of thing about you know give yourself a, a little gift every day and so forth and how fondly everyone speaks of pie and then like you know your brie and baguette your whatever um mm. food occupies a special place this food clearly does not uh and everyone's rejecting it and cooper goes so far as to just leave the hospital right. like people are rejecting this food in, in one strain but cooper is just like you the recuperative powers of the body when the will is invoked are like amazing right, right. um and certainly, I don't think he would turn down, if he had the stomach for it, a cup of coffee or a piece of pie right now. Right. But who do we see turn down a cup of coffee in this episode other than Albert? Albert is at odds, has been at odds thus far in the show with the people of Twin Peaks in every conceivable way. Uh, so far as to, I like noticed this for the first time, and it's just like, he turns down the coffee. And I know it's coffee from the hospital, but I don't think that that's, like, the problem here. Mm-hmm. I think what's maybe kind of being gestured at is that, uh, much like Cooper turns down Hayward's recommendations, too, much to Doc Hayward's, like, he's, like, pissed at Cooper for the rest of the episode. He's just like, you should not be walking around. You got shot. I don't like this idea at all as a medical professional. Mm-hmm. Um, going as far as saying, ask the psychiatrist about your bullet wound or whatever he says in the presence of Jacoby. But this... This town does not operate on the regular kind of recuperative uh uh function like cooper's just gonna walk out of there and he's he's like on the same wavelength as the people in twin peaks by and large well but i also think that we could make the argument that cooper is in some sense exceptional we can but we see even pete in his first day like out of the hospital he has not been shot though he that's true inhalation <laughs> but i think he's still he's still hurting and if i was probably like i would probably have to say i don't think my chance would be good to get out of the hospital within a day after smoke inhalation like i'm just saying i think there's something going on here where there's this like embrace of country living and like folk wisdom and the things that are good for you Mm -hmm. like the food that you like that is good for you the activities that you like that are good for you um, that is kind of being countered with the, the as we've seen, actually really dangerous for you uh, place that is the hospital. So far as uh, you can be easily murdered there by That's, by an interloper. Yeah. Like this is not like the hospital is not a place where people necessarily go to get better in twin peaks right and that's interesting. a place where dead people end up well that's interesting also because ronette is still in the hospital and still in that coma and then bobby does say you know this is hospitals are dangerous places and the food will kill you yeah so instead shelly wants a whole pie and is not going to touch what the doctors have given her like i i think there's i think there's something to be said there if only to strengthen the point that uh people in twin peaks love good diner food like if it's only in service of that i still think there's something something at play but anyway 
That's my that's my food thing. I'll go back to sipping my ginger beer. Ashley, I want to ask you, do you have any looks that you noticed this episode? You know, I really didn't. I wasn't taking note of looks because Audrey's in that same outfit for the whole episode. I'm not going to give Donna any looks points this week while she's single white femaling Laura. Oh, you don't think the, the blue sweater and the, the sunglasses are a good look? I was not Isn't a there a belt? She has two, an unfortunate belt, yeah. I think. Yeah. And a very unfortunate belt. Yeah. yeah. So we don't see Josie, who's another regular regular on my looks list. Um, Shelly's in the hospital. Norma usually wears a uniform. Uh, they're still dressing Maddie in really drab sweaters to just make her not look like Laura, so... Not a great episode for looks. Did you notice anything, Scott? I'm not. I'm, I don't have a look pooled here. I do think that seeing Norma <laughs> out of the out of the double R outfit in the hospital was like interesting. I think Ed's still rocking the clothes he had on it when I jacked. Yes. Pretty pretty <laughs> swell that western shirt and so forth. Yeah, but, we'll have to go back yeah. to Ed in a second here. But yeah, talking about Norma, she uh, was definitely working her mom jeans with the uh, waist that was, you know. <laughs> Well above her navel, I think. I mean, that was really something else. That was a look. But that was the 90s. So, um, no, I can't think of any other looks that anyone had. Um, but you know, going back to uh, Big Ed, when um, Cooper and company run across him in the hospital as they're making their way through, and then you get to find your little section for, what do you call it, drape corners? Drape, drape runner corner. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Just last episode, you've pulled me in. This is what we get for inviting a guest on, I guess. I'll... Here it is. Here's Draper in our corner. <laughs> Out of retirement. Retired for the space between one episode and the next. Um, no, I'm, I'm more than happy to because, uh, again, what we're dealing with here is Albert being at odds with the people of Twin Peaks, openly laughing at Ed's story about uh, Ed, Nadine, and Norma. Um and again i think this relates to the themes of just like things work differently in this town where as unhappy as ed's situation was he is fully capable of like embracing the his fond memories of being with nadine and is really reverent for the fact that nadine never like uh held it against him that he was actually responsible for her losing her eye which um i had i had completely forgotten like if you'd asked me uh how that happened really? I, I wouldn't have remembered that that scene out of so it's really funny that i made this a recurring yeah. thing on the podcast then for not being an expert on nadine's backstory um but it's like genuinely not me doing a bit it's a really sweet scene ed's description of all of that and his his you know you know kind of spilling the beans to Cooper, but also just like expressing how he has worked through uh, being part of this complicated scenario, this complicated relationship uh, is very, is very touching. And it's also touching to see Norma, you know, seeing Ed care uh, for Nadine, being at Nadine's uh, bedside. And I'm sad to say, and I don't think it's much of a spoiler, that this might be the last time I say anything involving Ed and Nadine is touching. Like, that's fair. Emotionally, uh, this is definitely like the emotional resonant. peak of Ed and Nadine, and I think it like does it makes their relationship make sense. So it's no longer like, oh, poor Ed, look at him married to Nadine, isn't that sad? That it their mm-hmm. relationship uh, is very 
complex and it makes sense why they're still together and i guess in a way it's it's closure because we will see where this goes from here um yes we will see where this goes from here (laughs) but that's what's good about this episode this episode isn't huge on lots of revelations as far as the big picture of the mystery of course because they're still refining things and focusing and getting new clues of course this episode is so great because it has those character moments that it's, the show just kind of stops and lets Major Briggs have his moment and have Ed have his moment and Pete has his moment later when he's talking about Catherine and that's what um sets this show apart from i think lots of other shows and it sets this episode apart definitely from the previous season too because they're just taking a minute letting the characters really grow and expand in an organic way that doesn't seem like you've wanted to know about this so let's tell you about it it just kind of flows in with the story i think in a really really nice way it's a very it's a very loving episode yeah the 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 bond between I'm just going to go list the bond between Shelly and Norma. Uh, Bobby saying, yeah, I guess I love you too, which is not like the most romantic thing, but like <laughs> for Bobby to say it to Shelly is like still something. Uh, Ed and Nadine, um, Pete's uh, comments uh, about Catherine. Mm-hmm. Bobby and his father. Bobby and his mm-hmm. father. Uh, am I missing any? Like, well, and then Cooper has his little moment where he does maybe think he's going to die when he's talking to Diane and he's talking yeah, about yeah. things he wanted to achieve in his life, like solve the Lindbergh kidnapping, uh, which refers to a major case mm-hmm. in the 20s, and um, that he wants to make love to a woman that he has genuine affection for and treat people with more kindness um, and then go to Tibet. Go to Tibet. Tibet. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but I, I like how that, that list starts. Also, just like the resolve of Cooper to trust that his tape recorder might be voice activated such that, you know, he's going to make the determined effort to record his last words. Yes. These are indeed going to be his last words, Mm -hmm. but he starts that list with, he wants to climb a hill, not too tall, lay in the grass, not too cool. And like that, just that, like he just wants to experience this one serene moment. Like that is not how people's last words typically start. And, Mm -hmm. and it's, and it's more revealing from there. Um, a lot of a lot of really great character yeah. moments. Well, and I think that the Lindbergh case that he's referring to, his like desire to solve that kind of, it nicely bookends with his earlier comment about wanting to know what really happened between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys. And yeah, <laughs> Cooper is kind of an outsider in that sense. And like I said, it's very like anti X Files. You know, he's not part of this big government conspiracy. He's trying to just like figure it out. Almost on a more humanistic level than any other thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I just I just noticed in my notes that I did write down Donna and her fucking sunglasses. Yeah, <laughs> this is apparently how I referenced that for myself. So, and, uh, and then Maddie loses her glass. She destroys her glasses. Yes, so that was that that teen movie moment. <laughs> and you know that's yeah. one of the things that uh, at that point in the series and in the next episode, I was absolutely convinced at the time that. Well, it's not a spoiler that I thought Madeline was really dead and that Laura was masquerading as her cousin. So you really? were you were of that of that camp. We were talking about yes that. for a few uh, episodes. I really so. thought so. Okay, this seems like well, this seems like as good a time as any. Were there any theories? Like, what other theories did you have? Like, from season one going into season two? Because, um, like I said, we all. We, uh, I don't know how much you took breaks while you were watching it and then like I mean, thought that, about where that it might 15 go. 15-second Netflix break where they're like, are you sure you <laughs> want to keep going? <laughs> yeah, well, it, um, in the summer between, um, obviously, there uh, 
the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer came out as a book, mm-hmm. um, and then there was an audio cassette and then a book called um, Agent Cooper, my or Diane, My Life, My Tapes, and um, it had lots of the audio clips that he actually showed him recording on the show, plus the book had a whole lot of um, before, obviously, he got to Twin Peaks. So there was that kind of stuff that kind of whet your appetite for it. And then the, the Diary of Laura Palmer had lots of hints in it, but they obviously don't make sense until you know where that leads to in the show. But hmm. theory-wise, I mean, no, it was... I mean, I had a few suspects in mind. I mean, I can name them, but I don't want to spoil anything. But um, I wasn't far off on one of them. And then another, I thought Dr. Jacoby was definitely a suspect until this episode. When mm-hmm. you, when they, they go out of him. their way this episode to absolve Jacoby yes. from suspicion, yes. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, um but no one else. I can't really think. I mean, and you know, obviously there was Usenet at the time, but I w- did not have a computer or anything at the time, so I was not privy to that type of network to speak to other people. To, it was just with friends and stuff like that. So hmm. that's really interesting. Yeah, water cooler talk. Absolutely um, would have been would have been it. Yeah. Um, can Can I ask how old were you when um, this was? I was just a little younger than you guys. I was twenty one when it was on. Okay. Awesome. Yes. Um. Yeah, I did. I already tell my story of watching this show for the first time on this show. Um, I think if you said that it was in high school, I don't know if you said much beyond that. Okay, well, if this is oh, or it was yeah, it was after your trip to North Bend where you made an acquaintance. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, being being seventeen and watching this, uh, um, yeah, I just I think now like now that I get the the well the liberty of watching it again i mean we you asked me if i wanted to do a podcast about this and i was like yeah sure and now it's just like this is now part of my weekly routine um is watching the show a week at a time which itself is different but mm-hmm. uh seeing the difference in how much i like focused on the teenagers storylines uh versus now i'm like super into like what's going on with norma and ed uh on this watch through like I felt myself mature, a, a t- just the tiniest bit, um, and maybe that's just because I don't want to think about going back to high school ever again. Um, uh, that's the thing that hap- has happened to, to me to a certain extent, obviously, because I've watched the show and had it on all the different video formats over the years, and I've never really stopped watching it. And of course, I was always interested in what James and Donna and Shelley and all of them were going to do at the time, and I loved Cooper, but obviously, I identified with them. And now, you know, obviously, that I'm like probably older than big ed and um and norma and everything every they were on at the show at the time um i definitely see a lot more things to connect with to those characters as well i was you know interested in the first time but now i got a more full picture yeah i'm i'm kind of curious how how many times would you say you've rewatched the series um i've probably seen most episodes at least 10 to 20 times each so and then watched it all the way through, probably maybe four or five times, like all the way through. So okay, yeah, you've you've got a leg up on yeah. it. <laughs> Ashley hasn't even finished watching. Um, so I'm trying to think of like there's there's so many like did you was uh, was there uh, at the time another show that people would be like Ugh, Twin Peaks like you need to be watching this like. 
did it have a show that was seen as a rival to it or that was more worth people's time by certain people? Like, why are you dealing with this cult TV show where they're never going to, like, tell you why there's, like, a, a dwarf dancing in a red room? Yeah, I mean, I heard that from people. Like, why would you want to watch a show that's so fantastical or this this doesn't make sense? I, I like my, one of my friends, a direct quote, I like my um, shows to be entertaining. But uh, he's just being facetious. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I feel like I feel like you still hear that. Like I uh, tried to make my mom watch Community when uh, it was in danger of being canceled, and my mom watched it and was like, you know, people just want to go home and they want to just turn off and they just want to watch The Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Oh boy. There's definitely a mentality to that too. That was very challenging for a show like that to be on, and especially before DVRs. And mm-hmm. before streaming and you could pull it up and watch it on demand and stuff like that, you had to really watch a show and commit to it. And that's why I would like, I would probably watch an episode two or three times the week that it was on after I taped it. And if you didn't give it that kind of attention, then you were going to miss something. And I don't think so many people were ready for that. Sorry. And the, this is, this is me saying sorry to the listeners, not to you, Scott, yeah. but we can't let this go unaddressed. You have two cats, and they are doing the cutest, like, nuzzling thing yes. in, in the background of your webcam right now, yeah. and I can't take my eyes oh off my of god, it. Oh my god, they're so They're uh, a white cat and a black cat, Charles and Jack. Yeah, so, so I, will, I will try to uh, uh, use my improvisational uh, quick wit to tie this back to Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, uh, themes of <laughs> lightness and darkness, but well, also I was say, like, tenderness. That's... Um, there we go. We're back that's in very, That's very like lost, like the black and white chess set. <laughs> yes, there <laughs> you that, go. Yeah. There you go. Um, but that's a different podcast. I'm curious. Did you did you start taping the show like immediately, or did you have to kind of wait for them to start re-airing? No, I taped it in the very first episode it was on. I had it set uh, because I was afraid I wasn't going to be home, and I recorded it. But I got home and watched it, and then I rewatched it. So I was already recording it and i had read That's things so like smart. entertainment weekly had a big feature so my interest was already peaked so to speak mm-hmm. about it and um i was in it from the get-go there was a brief time when you asked me ashley if i thought the podcast name would be better if it was twin peaks peaks <laughs> p-i-q-u-e-s and i was like i don't think anybody's gonna look at that and like get it <laughs> I like today was telling someone that I really wanted to use that version of Peaks. Yeah. It's a good Who word. Are you telling? Uh, oh, the people I volunteer with at the animal shelter. I was okay. just telling them about the Also, podcast. yeah. Is, is anybody at the shelter listening? Is anybody at your work listening? Um, yeah. I have, I have some uh, friends from my old job who listen. I was telling someone else at my new job, um, and I was just telling the people I volunteer with, so... I've been plugging this all over my you're professional the, you're, life. You're the street team. <laughs> Meanwhile, I now I just started a new job and I work at an office that is so God, I hope one of them doesn't end up listening to this. It's very normal. And I don't mean that in like a fully like derogatory way, but I think it would be a hard sell to get them to be like, Yeah, a podcast where you watch this twenty five year old T V show, I'm in. Like <laughs> anyway. Small, small problems for podcast life. Um, Ashley mentioned briefly, because you talked, uh, Scott and Ashley, you both talked earlier today, uh, prior to recording, about something you did as a fan to like express your appreciation for the show. Like You were already taping it, but 
this is super cool to me and i'll explain why after you tell the story yeah so i made like uh photocopies of lots of different production stills and character pictures and things like that and i even would like I had this thing of Audrey, like this tiny little thing of her from when she was dancing in the diner and had it laminated. And then I made it into a little pin and I had like a little Audrey pin that I would wear. And I had like an Agent Cooper and I had like a picture of a cherry pie. Um, so it was a little, I mean, my friends will tell you, would say that I was in fact completely obsessed with the show and I took it to great lengths. I even did like a kind of an homage tribute film uh, in art school called Dual Valley which was a yeah. uh, eight part every episode was 10 minutes and it used twin peaks music and had so it was kind of a parody slash homage that's that's i mean that's super cool uh i think also i think the the trying to come up with twin peaks parody names for just to service making a twin peaks parody is like probably a genre in its own right we should maybe spend yeah. an episode on that <laughs> and digging up as many of those we can find um because this show did have attention, and it did not. I mean, there was even an SNL with Kyle MacLachlan where yeah. they the night made before light of the, show. the night before this um, this season premiere. Yeah. Oh wow. wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So it did not escape the the, the parodists at all. Um, the great Simpsons takes on Twin Peaks uh, yes. are near and dear to me. But yeah, I mean, that when Ashley told me that you made pins and, and made your own like kind of fan goods, that's super cool. I you know in my in my very recent college years made a bunch of dumb t-shirts because we had a screen printing shop. And it's like, I, I feel like today that that's something that is, is almost maybe more, more seen as unusual or strange because you can find t-shirts for literally whatever it is you're into. Yeah. Yes. Um, that mode of like fan production and uh, fan, just like the making of fan goods has exploded and oh my god the cats are fighting <laughs> um it's it, it's exploded to the point where it's now all very commodified and so like yeah if you are a fan of uh i don't know let's say doctor who and back to the future you can probably buy that um oh. hmm? oh, okay <laughs> sorry i'm gonna have to edit that part out um uh there is probably there's probably 10 websites where you can buy a shirt of the delorean crashing into oh the... my god oh wow that's yes oh this does not work well oh for an audio god. medium though i'll get to this in just wait a moment. Um, <laughs> no 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 <laughs> that shirt is so that was a really cute like twin peaks fan shirt uh yeah um anyway my, my point being today i feel like fandom as a as an ex, is an acceptable thing acceptable in part because it's been so heavily commodified yeah. uh people can go and and make their own fan works but then oftentimes it's almost just for the point of then like going to a convention or setting setting up an etsy and selling it mm-hmm. i don't feel like it's done as much these days just for one's own personal gratification so right. i find that to be really cool can you tell us about that t-shirt you just showed us because it was really awesome yeah, a, I, I haven't seen that one yet it's a real t-shirt from 1991 um <gasps> oh so God, i got I this during it. the second season when it was on so this is uh if you've not seen how far have you seen ashley In... i've seen through the reveal okay but so later yeah. this what you're seeing here is going to be a plot element uh okay. it's going to play yeah. into the plot so okay. yeah so we won't say too much about this shirt yes. then i guess Thank but, you. but um there's 
a domino on it for Hank, and I'm just like, yes. I don't want a reference to Hank on my Twin Peaks shirt. But anyway, <laughs> but no, that's really cool. I'm, that's really cool that you've kept that all this yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, and it's in great condition. So yeah, uh, well, 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 well cared for. Yes, um, I try. Yeah. So, is there anything else you want to touch on in the context of the episode? We've kind of strayed away from that now. Well, Um, I do think one thing that is interesting is, like, so we're definitely steering clear of, like, getting really definite answers about, you know, who killed Laura. But we actually end up getting um, a timeline of, like, what happened to Laura that night. Oh, yes. Yes. I do want to talk about this. Table uh, of donuts. The donuts. Yes. The don't the, yes. if you want to talk about I was also um, texting mo- with my mom today being like what what food was there because um, she just remembers these things and like will give me suggestions uh-huh. and on her list was like the, the stacks of donuts mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah if we don't want to talk about montage and interesting film techniques giving the timeline with the overlaid you know kind of flashback scenes with just the slow pan over the donuts. Um, I don't know what to make of that other than I think it's really striking and very cool. And I want to say, I want to put the Lynchian stamp on it, but I don't think it necessarily like leaps out as something that's, that's typical of his style either. It's just a very interesting way of, of sort of dressing what is a rundown of what has been learned so far and where sort of the, the state of the mystery as it is for the sheriff's department. Um, well, and it's interesting because like revelations about Laura have not relied very heavily on flashbacks thus far mm-hmm. in the series. That's as close to an information dump that you'll get from David Lynch narrative wise, I think in almost anything where he's going to give you that much information and clarify things, you know? So mm-hmm. And, and he'll make it weird anyway. With yeah, the, absolutely. The beautiful donut spread. We do need <laughs> to do donuts again on this show soon. There's too many, too many legitimately good donut yeah. places in Portland to, to pass up that opportunity. Um, so. Well, and the other thing I was going to note is we get the, the return of Harriet, who gave us our original send yeah. off line in a certain yeah, I guess, sense. I guess I set that up too. Cause I mean, this is a scene that is great and we should talk about it anyway, but. The other person we've sort of kind of mentioned having on as a guest in the, the right. future, perhaps, um, one of our college professors. Um, I still just don't want to uh, say his name in case it doesn't happen. Um, out of respect, I don't know. Um, he told me that one of the friends he went to college with plays, is it, is it, Gersten? Gersten yeah. Hayward, yeah. Gersten Hayward, the as of yet unseen third Hayward child um, who plays the piano and is um, I'm very excited to tell you I'm the fairy princess. And I got, <laughs> like, <laughs> I love this dinner party scene. But anyway, my, my college, our, our college professor, I didn't tell you this yet, Ashley. Hmm. He's friends with a guy who ended up think marrying the actress who plays gersten what alicia alicia witt Uh uh-huh wow okay so that left that out that kind of came out of left field in in our conversation and yeah hopefully if we have our professor on he'll have more weird insights and connections like this um because the other thing he told us was that doc hayward is played by mark frost's father yeah yeah warren frost yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Um, also, because 
I never realized how prevalent Doc Hayward was in this series until I started being like, why is Doc Hayward in this scene? I don't remember him in this scene, but he's here. Yeah, he, uh, he's, he's, I mean, is he the, he's not the only doctor in Twin Peaks, right? But he's like the guy. He's theoretically, the main they doctor. Have, yeah, yeah, theoretically they have a whole hospital, but it's probably just Doc Hayward. It's probably just, <laughs> uh, it's actually probably the hallway, that, that one creepy hallway is the hospital at Twin Peaks, and then every room we've seen so far is all the rooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, just, it's it's a one-story building. Um, Hayward Memorial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, it used to just be a school gym annex, and then, yeah. Um, so, dinner scene, um, different song, uh, Come On, Get Happy. Uh, mm-hmm. So, no more does and oats and ivy and so forth. Uh, and Leland's sudden collapse. Um, I, I remember this scene having uh, Sarah Palmer be more tense and, and upset at this uh, kind of, at both the poem uh, read aloud, mm-hmm. uh, but also at the, at the song and dance routine. Um, but no, it's just like really painfully awkward up until up until Leland's collapse. And this scene is really unusual, too, in the context, actually. I'm watching it on the screen right now. It's shot differently than the entire rest of the episode. It's shot almost with above angles with a kind of a floaty feel, which gives it a very disembodied, strange feel from the rest of the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very um, tonally different like in that sense. And it's also like uh, very domestic and there's something both normal and very strange about it like it seems like something that the Haywards and the Palmers probably did prior to Laura's death and now they're all talking and not talking about Laura right. and her death and yeah one one would presume this it. is the first time that they've gotten together as two families since Laura's death mm-hmm. so. yeah um is is Harriet the only um practicing artist we've encountered in twin peaks thus far let's say um i th- yeah i think so now yeah. you bring that up i, I don't I necessarily so. know where i'm going with that i also just thought of it myself i mean also gersten plays piano pieces um this episode um but i just uh much like with the pilot i love the the space that's made for uh harriet's particular style of poetry and her her uh, budding artistry, or is it blooming artistry, or is it? Um, sorry, uh, the full flower, the full flower, flower artistry. artistry. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely like. I a hundred percent want to see Harriet in season three. I just want to see what she's up to. What has she been doing for the past twenty five years? Yeah, because we don't get enough of her in the first two seasons. <laughs> we don't get enough of yeah. Um, so between this is. I mean, Scott weigh on win on this as well. Between um, Donna sunglasses Hayward, uh, Doc everywhere at all times Hayward, Harriet uh, full flower Hayward, <laughs> and Gersten fairy princess Hayward. I'm gonna say I'm sorry, Mom. Uh, I don't. Scott, know. are you here with the assist on what what the Hayward matriarch's name is? Um, Eileen. Eileen, yeah. I don't think Eileen's in the running. I think yeah. Eileen has not yet made enough waves. <laughs> um, but who's your favorite Hayward? 
Um, at this moment, watching them all on screen, I would have to say that Gersten is very colorful and makes quite an impression in her one and only appearance, sadly, on Twin Peaks. Yeah, spoilers, no more Gersten. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ashley, though, I think for you, it's probably going to come down to either uh, either uh, brush your teeth, Harriet. <laughs> Or uh, Grapes on the Edge Doc. So (laughs) who's it going to be? Who's it going to be at the end of this episode? I guess you can vote at the end of this episode with your sign-off. I guess I I will vote with my sign-off. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. uh, Speaking of sign-offs, we're this pretty good length episode so far, but I don't want to cut us off. We haven't even talked about our ginger beer yet. We haven't, and we haven't talked about um, Usenet or really production stuff. Oh, wait, we have a couple so, more points, though. We've got um, yeah. the uh, Meals on Wheels clue that was dangled that they, just, oh, that, yeah, that they just discussed. That's Donna's story. I don't want to talk about that. No, Donna's going <laughs> to follow up with that. Um, and also, I guess, has access to that, the sick whip that is the uh, double R station wagon. Yes. Um, so, good honor. Um, and then the most yeah. terrifying scene that we've seen on Twin Peaks so far ends this episode oh god yeah i was watching this at full volume yeah, at like oh 1 30 at night um so i mean my upstairs neighbors uh given that they're watching this show must not have you know i don't i'm not worried about disturbing them but uh yeah i don't know where to say what to say other than like i don't want to like recap the scene but ronette's awake yeah, she's awake, yeah, all right. Yeah, it it had almost seemed like they'd forgotten about Ronette to a certain extent, like she was no longer going to be a plot point. But I'm really glad that they're bringing her back, and in a pretty big way, it seems like. I I, I seem to, and this is just because you know, having only watched the show a handful of times, like I feel, um, like my my memories have been jostled because I remember Bob being foregrounded much earlier Mm -hmm. then again season one is still pretty early on into you know sure run of twin peaks um so we see a lot of a lot of what presumably ronette saw that night uh flashes of bob uh, flashes of violence and tune in next week i guess uh that's that's like well, it's also interesting because we were talking about earlier, We they haven't really relied on flashback too much and kind of revealing um, things about Laura, but we see that when Cooper's sort of putting the pieces together of what happened that night, and now we're seeing it again um, with Ronette, um, which is definitely like an interesting choice, and it's very um, kind of laying the cards out on the table in a certain sense. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the unique step, uh, and the, like kind of like the season one premiere let's see where this is going kind of like tag where it's like you want to know what happened that night we're going to show you a little bit to dangle the carrot of like we now have a witness um that wasn't a bird and that was in the train car Mm -hmm. to talk about this and we will learn more about the frightening figure known as bob who is definitely not bobby can we lay that to rest now not bobby He's, he's a he's a very conflicted boy with a very loving father (laughs) um yeah i think the thing about that scene is everything you've been through watching this whole episode when you get to that moment and you see that you almost you're like have i just seen laura die or 
you're almost questioning the reliability of what you're seeing there. Like if Ronette maybe had a different perception right. of something. So I think that's really interesting because the way the show kind of can play it both ways at that point with, yeah, we're going to tell you this, but you still are not going to know what the hell it means. Right. When, when this premiered, you were thinking, but is that Maddie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was this yeah. the moment that like... <laughs> Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, we'll move on to, to Usenet and, and and other wrap-up things, but we skipped the second appearance of the giant? <laughs> like Cooper's, well, yeah, Cooper's and these, two, but, these yeah. two things are linked, and I think it's sort of implied that, that the giant has a hand in waking up Ronette, or his possibly, appearance yes. is sort of linked to Ronette's... His kind of ball lightning form he <laughs> briefly takes at the very end of his second encounter with Cooper. Uh but yeah, Cooper's all like ready to just say like, "Yeah, that, I've like just had some kind of like on the edge of dying uh, hallucination," and then the giant is very quick to be like, "No, take me seriously." Well, yeah, and the giant has his ring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that's strange about that last scene with the giant as well, because it starts out Agent Cooper's asleep and the room is dark. You see the giant waving his hand in front of Agent Cooper as if to like awake him. And then the angle changes and the room starts to light up as though indicating a supernatural force. And then you see the giant again actually materialize like with a right. with a with a, a visual effect so it's like he was really there in person first and then he materialized once cooper was awake it was a very strange thing that kind of makes you question the real i mean obviously it's not really yeah. happening or is it really happening you don't know right right well we don't know where that ring went exactly dang it season season opener gave us a new cliffhanger where's the ring go <laughs> um yeah, they they wrapped up the locket, so now they have a new missing piece of jewelry. Right. Oh. Mm. And also, what's going on with the recording device? Isn't no, we're not going to get there. Uh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's what's uh, what's new? And by new, I mean new in 1990 on Usenet this week. Um. So there's a lot of repeat stuff. I really should have looked at like what was happening over the whole period between the finale and the the premiere but um i didn't do that uh because google groups changed its interface which made it a little difficult to find things this week um but there were some interesting theories um one was that ronette had killed laura and that was kind of what we were seeing at the end of the episode people it seemed had kind of forgotten about ronette to a certain extent so it was kind of interesting to see people kind of recontextualize like her character's Hmm. place in this whole mystery um, and then there's another interesting theory uh, surfacing, which is that Bob is Laura's split personality. Okay. I mean, there's a there's a heavy emphasis this episode when they're talking to Jacoby about the the two Lauras. So I, I imagine people must have been pointing at that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. I pulled up the AV Club review of this episode. Um, and one sentence that really sticks out to me, uh, just talking about the final scene with Bob and Laura, it says, uh, Bob returns, but a demonic Laura joins him. That imagery contribute contributes to the sense that her murder came from her own self-chosen debasement. Hmm. Um, and I think we, we can't, or we won't say whether that's true or not, but the idea that like this, uh, episode is kind of alluding to that or making that reading available, um, is certainly interesting uh to me in terms of like how how we read um you know a young girl in a difficult situation like that 
Yeah, the way the way uh, Cheryl Lee appears in that scene, the way Laura is, is very um, not what you would expect. Not that any of us, you know, know what that experience is like to be in that situation, but um, it just plays differently, and it does almost seem like she's a little bit more. Uh, complicit in some way in a, in a, with some kind of a weird ritual or something like that is what it seems like the way it's presented in this episode. So, mm-hmm. <sighs> That's a lot to take in. And uh, yeah, usually I like, I've actually secretly been growing to like these net things because when we, when, in, when we've talked about the heavier episodes, it's nice to hear a really dumb like <laughs> fan theory and be like, well, that was totally wrong. I know this cause I've seen the whole show, blah, blah, blah. Um, but no, this, this episode, uh, I can only imagine what it would have been like to be like twin pieces back on the air, but it's not going to like end you on, you know, though it had many touching, happy moments throughout the episode. It's not going to, pretend like things aren't bad with this situation in Twin Peaks and that there's not a murder to be solved, a very gruesome, uh, mysterious happening. Um, but at least Ronette's awake. That's Yeah, that's definitely gonna Yeah, that's definitely gonna move the investigation in a new direction. Yeah, yeah for sure. And and hey, and we still got our mystery teens on the case. <laughs> with mu- uh, with musical accompaniment. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Musical accompaniment and stolen sunglasses. Yes. <laughs> really just a stolen identity at this point. Right. Yeah. Um Scott, do you have any more like paratextual notes that you want to bring bring into conversation? Um I don't think so. I mean, this like I said this episode uh definitely satisfied me though at the time I did not feel like I was being led on. I know some viewers at the time thought that it, it, the show was cheating. I just thought it was was it was everything I could have hoped for when you're anticipating something like that. And then where it goes from there, just I loved every minute of it. So, all right, great. Um, speaking of, of loving every minute, now this is a really <laughs> bad segue. Let's talk about let's talk about this. Uh, Hollows and Fentimans ginger beer we've been sipping on this whole episode, Ashley. Um, uh, I'll start. It's pretty good. It's, it's really tasty. It's really um, good. It's only four percent, and we've been drinking it over the course of it's a fairly sizable bottle, one pint. Yeah, uh, over the course of two hours, but I'm feeling pretty good. Um, <laughs> I finished most of mine in the first half of this podcast, so. <laughs> Uh, re-listen with that in mind maybe yeah the parts where i just like can't stop talking um ashley's just like oh god (laughs) finish it up already (laughs) no um yeah i I have well hey we have someone to actually make a recommendation to scott if you can find this if you can find this on the east coast yes seek it out it's pretty good okay okay Um, we'll do and if, well, I mean, I guess we don't know if uh, if Pete's got the good stuff in his fridge yeah, uh, left there by Josie. Um, I mean, I assume that she's taking care of Pete. You know, she's got the money to, like, make this shopping trip to Seattle. She probably has a ginger beer budget. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully only the best for Pete. But, she probably has a stash uh, yeah. for him, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Then again. <laughs> Pete, your wife's missing. Enjoy this special ginger beer I have for you. <laughs> Yeah, and it might be really nice, but let's not forget that liquids and peat can sometimes go awry. <laughs> True. He cracks open a nice ginger beer, sets it down on the counter, 
goes back to it, and suddenly there's aquatic life floating around. <laughs> right. He or, only discovers when too late. Or did Josie maybe put the fish in there? We don't know. That's never answered. Ooh, yeah, was that actually was that point. on the was that on that list of cliffhangers you <laughs> that had was, last week? That was not on that list. <laughs> Who put the fish in the percolator? <laughs> oh gosh, wow! The Usenet people were not firing on all cylinders then. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll give that a damn fine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hey, Hollows and, and Fentimans, uh, if you hear this, sponsor us. Sponsor us. We need sponsors. <laughs> we don't really need sponsors, but we'll take it. Um, I guess now that we're shilling, uh, I guess that's the appropriate time to talk about our Twitter accounts and so forth <laughs> and, and wrap up the show. Uh, yeah, so you can find, obviously, our show is on iTunes. It's on Simplecast. Um, we're also on Tumblr, and we opened up the Ask Box and the Submit feature earlier this week um, at the request of another listener called lost in the movies um who has been a chill person to talk to about the show so far so thanks for bringing that up to us lost in the movies yeah um i am matthew olson i can be found on twitter at matthew olson uh spell it with one t o-l-s-o-n i won't be so blunt this week and just tell you to spell it right um i also do another podcast it's a sort of comedy show we do wiki races me and my friend caitlin and it's called can you get to that it's also got a simple cast page it's also uh on itunes so just look for it if you if you want to listen to some some goofs going through going through wikipedia pages uh oh and i'm on twitter at ashley brant um and thank you so much for joining us scott do you have something to plug yeah plug yourself um i'm on twitter i'm not super active but i think i will be getting active so uh, it's scott 4343 and um, i'm going to be starting a podcast with one of my friends basically covering our perspectives on pop culture so we can basically dive into music movies uh just technology every everything in general i mean it's going to be open-ended and we're excited to get it started so hopefully that'll be up in the next few weeks and I nice. just wanted to yeah. thank you guys so much for allowing me to crash your podcast. Um, I think it, w- it was a pretty good time. Um, aside from our, our audio pausing, this has been a totally pleasant experience. Yeah. That was like momentarily terrifying, but this has been <laughs> really great. And thank you for, for uh, getting in touch with us and, and agreeing to come on. Um, yeah, and this... we'll, uh, we're looking forward to the start of your podcast, or at least I am. Yeah, we'll watch, we'll watch Twitter, watch that space to, to find out more. And we recommend that listeners do the same uh, if, if they've enjoyed this. Or if they haven't, you should listen to all podcast listeners. <laughs> yeah, why not? Podcasting is hard, so whether or not you have an interest in what it is, you should listen because we, just, we, we can't just do this to the void. You know, we need, we need feedback. That is the curse of all podcasters. Scott, you're going to learn this soon enough. Yes. Yes. Um, well, if you can't make anyone happy, you make yourself happy. But, of course, if other people are entertained, then that's a good thing, too. And you like to hear about it. So, Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, sorry, I got weirdly dark there. I was going to try and keep it like light and airy this episode. But I think I just kind of dive deep into Forever Alone. Yeah, I just I just upload these MP3s and I don't know where they go, but I can't say that now because you listened and you got in touch. That's so, right. Yeah. That's there right. So miracles do happen. Miracles yeah. do happen. <laughs> Ashley, do you have any? Fe- we're this is like not our two month anniversary, but we've been doing this for a while, and you have grand plans to launch like what is it like eighteen more podcasts in the next couple months? Only 
three more. <laughs> you can't get enough of it. It's it's fun. I don't know. Um, it's been like a really cool like creative outlet for a lot of like weird like monologues that like go through my head while I'm like thinking about um thinking about these things that are important to me like Twin Peaks and the Kardashians. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the connections there. It's just endless. I finally I finally have a soapbox for my for all of my uh, Kardashian Twin Peaks uh, fan theories. That's not what you do. Um, though if you, when you have the Kardashians podcast, if you want to do a crossover episode, oh yeah, where we try and eke those connections out, let's do it. We, we can definitely Absolutely. do that. I'm, like, you are, you do already have ideas, don't you? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Scott, this has been great. Listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, Ashley, uh, I guess you should. Well, sh- should you sign us off? You yes. still have to cast your vote. I just think yeah, we could have gonna... a guest sign us off, but no. Yeah, no. wait, no, Scott, you should totally. No, sign no, we need we need to know what you who your favorite Hayward is, okay. right, Scott? Fav- That's right. right and I just want to thank okay. you guys again, and thanks to everyone for listening. Keep listening to their podcasts because they are very entertaining. Thank you, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. All right, what's it gonna be, okay. Ashley? Don't forget to brush your teeth, Harriet. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Scott, do you want to sign off? Do you have a favorite line? Uh, from this particular episode? Yeah. Um, I would say probably it's Pete Martell, and uh, Matt already touched upon it again, but I'll be like, uh, felt like someone taped my lips to the tailpipe of a bus. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.